Go ahead and turn uh, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, and we will be starting in verse 16, Luke chapter 4. And once you are there, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So as we go ahead and continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we are now approaching Jesus starting his earthly ministry. So last week, Max uh, showed, uh, taught us about how Jesus has this summary ministry that he does in Galilee, and you can find the summary statements of that in verses 14 and 15 of Luke chapter 4. But here we get into some specific accounts of what Jesus' ministry looks like in the region of Galilee, specifically here in his hometown of Nazareth. And we're going to break this section into two parts. One, because it's a great number of verses. And two, because really as this story unfolds, there's two separate, really dense components that we need to unpack. The first is called the truth proclaimed. That's the study we're going to do today, the truth proclaimed, which deals with verses 16 through 21. And then next week, we're going to look at the truth rejected, which is going to be verses 22 through the close, verse 30 of this narrative. And the reason we're taking time to break these sections apart is because there is a lot of exposition of scripture in these texts. There's a lot of prophecy that is being dealt with. And there's a lot of questions that we have to answer about the text of scripture, given our modern context and, you, and typically our lack of understanding live in the, living in the time and in the day that we do uh, reading and hearing and understanding these texts. Okay, so we're going to break these up. And then in this week, The Truth Proclaimed, we're going to break that up into three headings as well. And you can write each of those down in turn. The first of those is going to be the context of this passage, the context. And that is, we're going to see Jesus, the place that he's in, the synagogue, and then we're going to see all of the surrounding connotations that he's in as well. And then we're going to go through the other headings as we go through the passage. So look with me in verse 16, and we're going to start with the context. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So verse 16 sets for us the context of this passage. So we know in verse 15, 14 and 15 that he's been doing ministry in the region of Galilee. And his ministry is primarily focused on him teaching and proclaiming uh, and expounding God's word to the people. And so we know that this is his overall summary ministry. And now he comes to his hometown of Nazareth. And this is great because this is where we're familiar with him being brought up, right? We know that Joseph and Mary are from this town. And it tells us in the text that he comes to Nazareth, which is the place where he grew up. Now, this is not actually where he grew up as a child. He was raised and he really lived in Capernaum for a great deal of his life. But he was raised or birthed and grew up in his infancy in the region of Nazareth. 
And then it tells us that this is not just some random practice that he does going to the synagogue. It tells us that this was his custom to go to the synagogue. That's in the second part of verse 16. Now, there's a few things that we need to note as we see that it is Christ's custom as an adult to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, there's a few differences that we need to make given our context and their context, which is that the synagogue is not one-to-one a church, and the Sabbath is not one-to-one with the Lord's day. But there are many parallels between the two and many practices that are similar between those two things. The synagogue was a place where the people would gather, the local community would gather, And this is a place where they would hear God's word read. They would have a blessing given over them. There was a local eldership or authority that was over each synagogue. And there were a great number of synagogues all over the city. Some sources say that Jerusalem at the time of Jesus's life had somewhere in the range of 400 synagogues. So these are not massive locations. These are small localities of Jewish people gathering to hear God's word proclaimed, to hear it preached and hear it taught. And so this is very similar to what we see today in churches as well. So it's not a one-to-one parallel, but there's a lot of similar practices going on. The other connotation here that we need to address is the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath is not Sunday. Sunday is what we as Christians would refer to as the Lord's day. The Sabbath would have happened really from Friday night sunset till Saturday at sunset. So the Sabbath was really Saturday. It's the last day of the week. Whereas for us, Sunday is the Lord's day, first day of the week. There are two different days that these events happen on. But nevertheless, it has been the pattern of the Jewish people at this time to gather regularly once a week, and it has been the pattern of Christians throughout the last 2,000 years of church history to gather on average about once a week. Now, in different contexts and uh, and different locations, that's not possible. But we are exhorted as a people to gather regularly for mutual encouragement, for edification, for the building up of the body, so we can pray for one another, so we can commune together. And it was Jesus' custom to do this as well. Now, there's one other thing we need to note about this being his custom. If you think a little bit about the fact that Jesus is attending the synagogue, and many times he attends the synagogue, he might not always be the teaching rabbi there. And so he is sitting in the crowd at the feet of these other rabbis, hearing scripture read out loud, usually from an Old Testament passage of the law, and then also from a passage of the prophecy, so Isaiah through the end of what is now our Old Testament. So you would hear something from the law, something from the prophets read, and then a sermon or an exposition given. And Jesus regularly attends the Sabbath, despite the fact that many of these rabbis who are teaching are giving poor, inaccurate, and false expositions of Scripture. Think about how many expositions of these prophetic passages Jesus sits under, and the rabbis are not identifying him as the person who they point to. And yet... He submits to the fact that it is the will of God that in this case it is the synagogues where his word is taught. So he faithfully attends the synagogues despite the fact that they have great numbers of error in their teaching. And we can learn from this as well because as Christians, there is no such thing in the world as a perfect church. We are called to wrestle with our brothers and sisters. We are called to wrestle with the teaching. We are called to exhort and to encourage one another. There is no denomination in all of the United States, in all of the world, that has perfect, inerrant doctrine. Now, you might ask, then why don't everyone, doesn't get, everyone get on the same page and get on the same page about their errors? And it's because we disagree about what those errors are. And we extend liberty and charity to those disagreements. But note the fact that there is no such thing as a perfect church. And Jesus still faithfully models for us regular attendance with the body of the faithful worshipers of God. And he does that despite the fact that their teaching is in error. 
And so you and I must be charitable with one another. And as we attend churches and as we go out and as you hear the word proclaimed, we must remember the fact that we are all subject to errant teachings. And you can think about not only in his earthly lifetime, but even in the 2,000 years since he has ascended into heaven, how many false and terrible sermons he has had to listen to proclaimed in his house. And yet through his kindness and his generosity, he extends grace to all of us. Even you and I, when we have false beliefs and false understandings, about the faith. But nevertheless, he models for us that faithful belonging to a member of the body. And in this case, in this synagogue, on this Sabbath day, he is the one who's responsible for preaching. It tells us, Luke tells us at the closing of verse 16, that he is the one who stands up to read. Now, this is not him standing up to read, going to read the scripture, and then going to sit down and someone else is going to deliver the sermon. In this day, the, con the context was the person who would get the scroll handed to them to read the scroll, they would stand up above everyone else, they would read the scroll, then they would translate what they just read from Hebrew to Aramaic, and then they would sit down and deliver an exposition of the text. Now, the reason they have to translate from Hebrew to Aramaic is because the Hebrew language, which is what the Old Testament was written in, which is what the Jewish people would have preserved their scriptures in, is not the commonly spoken language of the Jewish people at that time. So whoever reads has to know Hebrew and has to be able to teach or translate in Aramaic the text that they have just read. And that's because not all of the people in the community know Hebrew. The ones who teach know Hebrew, the rabbis, the scribes, and the Pharisees know Hebrew, but not all of the Jewish people do. So they must exposit or translate the text into Aramaic and then deliver their sermon in that language. And I note that early on because there's going to be a point here when we start quoting from this Isaiah 61 passage, where if you were to look back at Isaiah 61 in the Old Testament, you're going to notice discrepancies between the Old Testament quotation and the New Testament quotation. And the reason you're going to notice those disparities is because it is translated from Hebrew to English in our Old Testament, but it is translated from Hebrew to Aramaic to Greek to English in the New Testament. And so there's going to be differences in phrasing, although the overall contents of what is being said is still true, the one-to-one -one verse, if you were to compare them back and forth, there are some disparities there. That does not mean that the Word of God changes over time. What that means is that our ability to translate faithfully language is limited and it is finite. So we need to be aware of that as we go into this text. So Jesus gets up, he reads, and this is going to lead us into the content of his sermon. So we are going, we've looked at the context now, and now we're going to go ahead and look at the content of what he is going to preach on. So start with me in verse 17. And it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now we're going to read this quotation together in a moment. But before we do that, I want you to note something about what he does. He gets the scroll handed to him. And then he finds the place that he's going to read from the scroll. What this means is this is not a predetermined reading. In this eldership body of the synagogue, there would have been one elder who's responsible for the keeping and the safety and the maintenance of the scrolls of all the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, for those of you who are going to join us on Saturday this week, we're going to take a look at how we know what the Old Testament was on the basis of these scrolls that we find in the local synagogues, the preserved scrolls. And so the Bible, we have it as a book form, but this book was not present in ancient Israel. It wasn't present even in the time of the Greek people. It was in the presence of scrolls that they had the books of Scripture. So they have loosely collected copies of each book of the Bible, loosely assembled in a scroll form. And so they hand him the book of Isaiah. They don't hand him an Old Testament. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. 
and then he unrolls the scroll and begins to read. And it's also important to know that there's no chapters or verses. So he's going to Isaiah from a place that he's very familiar with, not because of chapter or verses that he can remember, but he is intimately familiar with this passage. So he goes exactly where he's supposed to turn, and he's going to begin to expound this text for us. And he picks the text. And I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to talk about the significance of this text that he picks in just a moment. But we're going to read this all together, all as one quotation. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is Jesus quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And now we have to answer the question, where is he quoting from in Isaiah? And then what does this quotation mean as he quotes it? Well, that second one is easier to answer because as we continue to read the passage, we're going to see that he expounds this text for us. He leaves very little room for us to screw up this interpretation. But also, we have to address where it's from. Now, there's differences of opinion on where he's quoting from in Isaiah. The large majority of this quotation is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. That's the large body of this quotation. But there is one verse that is from Isaiah 58, 6. And that is the verse right above verse 19 in your Bibles. It says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He is quoting then from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58, both of those belonging to the body of scripture in Isaiah's text that deals with what is the mission of the Lord. You'll remember familiar passages like Isaiah 53 that belong to that same body of the book of Isaiah. So he quotes from two different places in this section of Isaiah, and now he's going to sit down and expound the text. But since he provides us the interpretation, we need to look back at this text and we need to understand what does he mean when he quotes this? What is he expounding upon as he reads these words? So the first thing he says, we see it at the beginning of verse 18. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now, when he's reading the me's in this passage, he's talking about himself. Every other rabbi who's ever taught this text of scripture is referring to the future Messiah that the Lord is referring to. If you were a Jewish rabbi at this time, dealing with the text from Isaiah would have been like us dealing with Revelation 20 and 21. They're prophetic, they're hard to understand, we're kind of sure, but we're gonna give lots of charity because we're not exactly sure when this is coming and what the exact manifestation is. And Jesus gets up and provides a clear exposition of a passage that he has selected. He's lobbed himself a softball of exposition. But every other rabbi would not have tried to touch this passage because this is apocalyptic literature and they're not quite sure what it means. In fact, the Jewish rabbis today even would insist that we're still not 100% sure when this prophecy will be fulfilled, but at some point it will be fulfilled. But Jesus nevertheless gets up and he says, it is me upon whom the spirit of the Lord rests. It is me, I am the one who has been anointed by the Lord. And we know where that happens in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. We looked at it a few weeks ago. Luke chapter, 21, Luke chapter 3, 21 and 22 tells us about the time Jesus was baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. The Lord speaks from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so we know that that is the event that Jesus is referring to. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And there's two things I want to remind you about anointing. One of them is that you are anointed in context for a specific mission. The anointing carries a connotation of a mission or a set of tasks or a series of things to accomplish. David, for example, was anointed to be king over Israel. 
Elijah and Elisha are anointed to be the prophetic voices of God in their day and age. Moses was anointed to be leader over the people of Israel. So anointing carries with it a series of tasks to accomplish. But also anointing carries with it a gifting of power. And we've seen this with Elijah and Moses and David. They're gifted with the ability, for example, in David's case, he's gifted with many victories in battle. He's gifted with almost a divine protection so that he doesn't die even as he fights all those battles because he's anointed to do this other thing. He's been set apart for it. So he's protected by God. The anointing, for example, for Moses is to help him with his speech, allow him to do a great number of miracles, and to lead the people with not only words, but with power. And so the anointing for Jesus carries both of those connotations as well. It carries the task that he's going to do, as well as the power by which he does it. Remember that power being the Holy Spirit, which is rest on him, which is given to him without measure. And so it is through this anointing that he is about to do all of the things he finishes this quotation off with. The first thing he says he's going to do, the first thing he says he's anointed to do, is to proclaim good news to the poor. And he uses that word proclaim three other times, at least in my English translation of this text. You'll see it there to proclaim good news to the poor. You'll see it two stint, two, or one line later where he says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And you'll see it in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And now this word each time, proclaim, 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 tells us the true thing about Jesus, which we learned last week. His ministry is a teaching ministry. His job is to preach or to proclaim God's word to the people. He proclaims good news to the poor. He proclaims liberty to the captives, and he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was sent to earth to be a preacher, which means all of the things he says are not false promises. They are divine predictions about what's going to happen. He's a prophet in the same vein as Isaiah and Ezekiel who say things that come true. He's not a politician trying to start a political revolution who's making false promises that if I were king or if I were Caesar, I would do this, that, and the other thing. He is a prophet of God who proclaims or preaches true statements. And we can rest assured of that because we live in a day where people can say one thing if they're running for an office and do something else once they hold that position. And this is not unique to our day and age. If you've been reading 2 Samuel and the M. Shane plan, you'll know that we bump into Absalom, David's son, who tries to usurp the throne by making false campaign promises to the people of Israel so he can gain favor with them and then overthrow his father. And none of those promises he fills up on. He withdraws many resources, but he doesn't actually give any of those promises back to the people. So this is not a problem unique to 21st century America. This is a problem unique to humanity and sinfulness. The Christ Jesus is not sinful. He is not fallen in nature as we are. And so when he proclaims, he speaks sure words of truth. He proclaims good news to the poor. He's going to tell good things to the poor people. And who are those poor people that he refers to? Well, there's two words that we could use to describe poor people in Greek. The first one is the one that is most commonly used to describe what we would call destitute poverty. Think about poverty in the sense of this person is not employed. They're not like a working class poor person. They're someone who is begging for every next meal. They're eating at the table. They're getting scraps at the table. They're begging on the street for food. Another word that you could translate this with is they are the afflicted of society. This does not refer to people who earn minimum wage in this culture and are scraping it by. This is someone who doesn't have another paycheck coming. 
They are a destitutely poor person. The other word that could have been used refers to that working class poor. It's used other places in scripture, but here Luke chooses to use destitute poverty to describe these poor people. And he says, Jesus comes to proclaim good news to the poor. And when we ask the question, well, does this merely mean a physical reality, a physical poverty? Is that the case? Is that what Jesus is referring to here? And we can think about Jesus's other teachings to ask that question and to answer it. You can think of Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five through seven, and we also have the same sermon in Luke's gospel. But uh, Matthew's gospel account in chapter five, verse three, he says, I came to proclaim, or he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so as Jesus expounds who the poor are, he has a deeper reality in mind than just the physically poor. Now that is not to say that he is not at all referring to the physically poor. Because as we know by evidence of the fact of his life, ministry, and the ministry of the apostles after him, is that the poor have a particularly special place in Jesus' heart. Just as the sick, just as the broken, just as those who have been oppressed by society do. But we know that he is not talking just about real poverty in our world. He's talking about a spiritual bankruptcy that is present. And we know this because rich people are in the kingdom of heaven and rich people are part of the early church and are disciples of Jesus. But he says it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he comes to proclaim good news to the poor. And you can ask the question, well, what is the relationship between a physically poor person and a spiritually poor person? The relationship is they both have nothing. The problem with riches is it can mask our understanding of the fact that we actually have nothing. A physically poor person has nothing to hold on to in this world. They don't have a retirement fund set up. They don't have tomorrow to hold on to. A rich person might want to stay in this world because they still have something here. They still have an investment here that might bind their heart and bind their affections in some way. But Jesus says he comes to proclaim good news to the poor, the spiritually poor, the ones who are aware of their bankrupt spiritual state, the ones who are aware that they are bankrupt morally, the ones who are aware that they have no bank account that could pay off the debt that they owe to God. These are the poor people he comes to proclaim the good news to. And this is not, by the way, a spiritualizing of the text. I want you to know that. There are some cases in which you spiritualize a text by denying the real realities of it and just kind of always pointing to future spiritual realities. This is consistent even with that day's Jewish interpretation of this text. So even back in the time of Isaiah, they would have said that this refers both to physical and spiritual realities, that it refers to both. And the reason we can be confident about this is if you'll remember back to Jewish poetry, we know that sometimes a psalmist will make multiple statements that all kind of paint the reality of the actual picture. A psalmist will have multiple lines that each speak to different variations or different restatements of the truth. Jesus is in this text describing the same group of people the whole time. He's not making different statements about different sections of society. He's making the same statement about the same group of people. And so he's talking about a spiritual group, the spiritually poor, those who are spiritually held captive, those who are spiritually blind and those who are spiritually oppressed. That's the same group of people, but each of those statements tells us a different reality about these people's condition. And again, it's worth noting, it's both physical and spiritual because Jesus does heal blind people and he does liberate slaves. Paul writes a whole New Testament letter to Philemon asking Philemon to release his slave because this slave is now a brother in Christ. 
And so this slave is set free on the request of Paul. And that's because Paul understands the correlation between spiritual and physical realities, but he also knows that it goes deeper than just the physical realities. These are spiritual truths that Jesus is expounding. And so then it takes us to the second statement. Not only does he proclaim good news to the poor, but he has been sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. And we can ask that same question, who are, in this case, the captives? Well, much like the previous statement about the poor, the captives are those who are spiritually held captive. Those who are in bondage to sin. Those who are in bondage and in slavery to their sin. And if you want to know who that is, Paul says in Romans 6 that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That Satan has deceived the world and he has led a whole host of people astray and they are spiritually bound by him. That there's a whole group of people that has been blinded to the realities of this world and these people are the ones who are held captive. And one of the realities we know that is that if you are physically in bondage, if you're physically held captive, death releases you from that captivity. But if you are spiritually bonded and spiritually held captive, death makes that reality more real. When you are dead, if you die in your uh, spiritual bondage, you become more really captive in the afterlife. But if you are physically in bondage, you can be yet spiritually free. And we know this because the early church primarily goes through poor people and the slave class in the Roman society. In fact, that's the vast majority of who makes up the church. And so we know that this is a, again, real reality, but it's also a spiritual truth that someone is held captive. Now, another question we can ask ourselves is, who is a person who is most held captive? And the person who's most held captive is someone who isn't even aware of their captivity. Think about, think about someone who is addicted to drugs. And you know they're addicted to drugs. Everyone knows they're addicted to drugs. They just don't know that they're addicted to drugs. And the person who's the hardest to convince that they have a problem is the person who doesn't think that they have a problem. That person is in far more bondage to that thing than a person who is addicted but has identified the problem and is seeking help. There are two different realities. The person who is so deceived that they are even more held captive to that thing is like the person who is in spiritual captivity, yet blind to the fact that they are in spiritual captivity. And so we can think about the fact that you and I have been deceived by the prince of the power of the air, that we are most free when we are most ourselves. We are most free when there are the fewest amount of rules that dictate how we live. We are the most free when we act every desire of the human heart. And we are most free when we deny the bondage and the burden of God's law. And we instead say, no, we are going to be autonomous. We are going to be a law unto ourselves. And those are a captive group of people. That is a really destitute place to be. Because there's no one who it's harder to convince that they are in bondage to sin than someone who is most freely indulging in their sin and seeing no problem with it. The person who's easy to convince of their sin is the person who's gotten all the way to the end of their rope and knows that this has nothing to offer them. They are no longer really in captivity in the same sense because their eyes are being opened to the fact that they are in captivity. And we live in a culture and a society where a bunch of people are held captive who live the most free and the most pleasurable lives imaginable. And this is the mission field that we enter as a church. And Jesus had the same mission field. He comes to proclaim liberty to those captive people. And the next statement he makes is he says he is responsible in his anointing to provide the recovering of sight to the blind. 
Now Jesus physically heals a, a few blind people. We know of many instances in the Gospels in which this happens. And we also know that John tells us that all of the miracles of Jesus couldn't possibly be recorded because if they were, we wouldn't have enough books or paper to fill them all. And so we know that he probably healed a great many more blind people. But what we also know is when he heals blind people or when he heals lame people, when he hears people with physical sicknesses and illnesses, he always, always has a deeper reality in mind in that physical healing. For example, when he takes the person who is lame and he tells him to stand up and walk, what does he say before that happens? Your sins are forgiven. And what he tells him when he says stand up and walk, that standing up and walking is a physical reality. This guy can now walk. But it points to a spiritual reality that he's now been given the power to walk in a different path than he was in before. Before he was lame, he couldn't walk in the path of light. Now he can walk and he has the power to have his legs move him in a different direction. A blind person cannot see the light. And Jesus in John's gospel is described as the light of the world who comes to get rid of the darkness, to expose the deeds of darkness. And the problem is that if you're blind, you don't know the difference between the light and the darkness. In fact, you would prefer it to be dark because at least then everyone's on the same playing field. You and everyone else who can see, you're all on the same playing field if it's dark. But the people who can see enjoy the light. And they prefer the light because the light reveals things that the darkness conceals. And the light is given to us by God to enjoy. And Jesus is the light who reveals the truth. And therefore, he comes to recover the sight of the blind people. And the reason he uses the word recover is because humanity was not created blind. Humanity was created to see. Humanity was created to worship God. Humanity was not creative in a fallen state, and yet it fell. And so Jesus comes to restore the fallen humanity, to recover the sight of those who are blind, to allow them to see. And as Zechariah prophesied, here Jesus is the sunrise from on high in Luke chapter 1, verses 78. And he is the light who comes to reveal the works of the evil one, of the darkness. And then we see that second and last statement about what he is coming to do. And he says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now this is the second time we have seen that same parallel imagery being used. He comes to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And you can look at the, the passage earlier where he says he comes to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now this text, if you were to look back in Isaiah 61, is not in Isaiah 61. This is where he quotes Isaiah 58, verse 6, and actually only a portion of Isaiah 58, verse 6. And he's talking about a different reality than the previously mentioned one. The first group is captive, and he liberates them. The second group is not captive, but they're oppressed, and he liberates them. He's moving now from an individual kind of captivity to a group kind of liberation. And this is important to know because when Jesus comes, he comes proclaiming the kingdom. And the kingdom has spiritual realities, but it also has physical realities. So when the kingdom of heaven comes forth on earth in the manifestation of the local church, was it how his kingdom moves forth? The church has no place for people to be oppressed or for different classes in society to exist and still exert authority over one another. The kingdom of heaven, the church, has no place for any kind of separation or distinction or exerting your authority over someone else as the world would have you do. Paul actually rebukes the Corinthian church for doing just as much. But instead, we are all called to love one another as equals in Christ. 
that there is now no more slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female, but instead we are all one in Christ. And that is the reality of the kingdom of heaven. He comes to set to liberty those who are oppressed. And again, this also talks about a deeper reality because he's liberated those who are oppressed or who are afflicted by their sins. Those people who might be aware of their sins but lack the power to actually change anything about their sins. And there are a number of people like that as well who still don't know the gospel, just know that they have a sin problem and are hopeless to fix it. And that's an oppressed person, someone who knows there's something better out there, but knows that they themselves don't have access to the power to obtain it. And Jesus says he comes to liberate those who are oppressed, or in other words, to provide power to those people by his spirit to liberate them from their condition. And so we need to think about a good way to understand this, because when he says liberate, he doesn't mean liberate so you could live your life as you want to. When he says liberate, he says something similar to take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or if you will turn with me to our first cross-reference, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. That's what it means when God sets us free, when he liberates us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. To be free in Christ, to be set free from your captivity, is to throw off the chains of your intended freedom, your slavery to sin, and put on the chains of being under the kingdom and the lordship of Christ Jesus. You keep his commandments, and the good news is his commandments are not a burden. His commandments don't tire you out. His commandments are actually the best way for you to live this life. If you were to think about a picture of this, you could think about a person who is crossing a giant chasm, and there's a bridge that is suspended between the chasm. And in this bridge, you have uh, not only bridge, but you also have railings on either side of the bridge that tell you which way to walk. And God's laws are like the railing that are on this bridge. If you want to get safely from one end to the other end of the bridge, you want things to keep you safe and keep you in because you are most free when you are alive, able to walk forward to safety. And the freedom that this world offers says, you know what, you don't need those guardrails. Get rid of the guardrails. You're better off if you can walk in whatever direction you want to, but broad is the road that leads to destruction. And if you take one step off that road, you're going to plummet to your death. But God says you are most free when you're under his commandments, when you're safe. And that's not a burden. That keeps you protected. And his commandments and his laws are like that for the Christian. To keep us on path, to keep us on mission, to focus on towards the end. And not be so constrained by all of the things that we have around us. More options does not mean more freedom. And we know this because as a society, we are the most free that the world has ever been. And we have the most oppression, the most anxiety, the most bankruptcy, and the most presence of mental affliction of any other culture. And we are yet the most free to choose and be who we want to be. There's no outside force telling us who or what to be, and yet we are most oppressed because we listen to ourselves and we are captive by ourselves and our own sin. And Christ offers something far better than just choose whatever you want. He offers restraints that free us. 
And he says, you don't need to be a slave to sin, you need to be a slave to me. And this is important to know because this whole text in Isaiah deals not only with who Christ is, we'll get to that at the end of this passage, but it primarily deals with what he's going to do in this world. Texts like Isaiah 53 tells us how he's going to do those kinds of things by being our substitute to liberate us. But these texts deal with what he is intending to do in the world. And if his intention is to liberate us by allowing us to put on his burdens, that means that that is what he wants for you. And that is what he is trying to accomplish. So if all of these statements are true, if this is what he is seeking to do, and you are a born-again believer, you live as though these are the reality. Christ came and he liberated you from your captivity to sin. He opened your eyes to your spiritual blindness and allowed you to see your sin for what it is. He freed you from your oppression and your inability to beat that sin in a fight. And he told you, you are no longer a slave to that sin. It holds no power over you. You're not oppressed by it. You are free to walk in truth. And he says that this is all good for us. And as Christians, we need to live in this. We need to stop living our lives like our sin dominates and controls and rules us. We are battling a war with the flesh. We know that we have won this war and we need to start living and acting and engaging in that battle like we've won. Not like we're getting our tails kicked. And we need to actually fight this fight because God has given us and accomplished all of these things in his lifetime. And so if you're a Christian, these things are true for you. You are no longer oppressed by sin. And the question you might be asking is, how do you fit into the categories of no longer being oppressed by sin? Christ says, if you want to get out of the old kingdom and come into the new one, you have to die and be born again. He says, you have to die to yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And you can't be born unless you die. You have to die and be born again, a spiritual birth, what is called the new birth. And this new birth puts you now in as an adopted son of the king. And now you are not a slave to your old life. You are now rightly declared to be part of a new kingdom. And although your, might, your situation, your circumstance not, might not be the reality of what your new location is, that doesn't change your new identity or your new location. It is well said in scripture that God, when you sin as a Christian, doesn't look upon you any better or any worse or any more favorably or any less favorably. Because he sees Christ and Christ's finished work upon you. What that doesn't mean is we should become complacent with our state. What that means is we should continue to live into the reality of what he has purchased for us. And so he liberates us, he frees us, he purchases us unto himself. And verse 19 concludes this quotation from Isaiah, returning back to Isaiah 61. And he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here, Jesus says that he is the eschatological fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. In Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61, the year of Jubilee is in mind, which is a year where all of the slaves in Israel would be set free, where all of the previous transactions would be reset, where all of the debt would be forgiven, where all of the bondage and sin that people had was washed away in the year of Jubilee. And Jesus says he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or the year of Jubilee. And we have to note what he doesn't quote out of Isaiah 61. Because if you continue to read Isaiah 61, verse 2, Jesus actually cuts off his quotation at the year of the Lord's favor and does not read the quotation about the year of the Lord's vengeance. And that's important to know because Jesus in his first coming does not come to fulfill all of it. In his first coming, he comes to fulfill this part of the prophecy, 
to declare the year of the Lord's favor, which is a time that started then and continues till now. But he's promised us, as John the Baptist has predicted for us, that that time is not forever. And that one day there will be a second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in which he will come for that second part of the prophecy to declare the Lord's vengeance on all of those who are no longer in his kingdom or have never been in his kingdom. And the coming of the king is good for those who are in reality oppressed because they're about to be set free by this king. But if you're living in freedom and the kingdom comes and you're not part of that kingdom, it's going to be far worse off on the day of that second coming. But Jesus here says that his first ministry is to fulfill this part of the prophecy, which is good for us to know because one of the common objections to a messianic or a Jesus being the Messiah, a Jewish person would read this and they would say, well, he doesn't fulfill all of the prophecy, so therefore he couldn't have fulfilled any of the prophecy. And what you don't understand is all of this prophecy is fulfilled over the course of time. He's baptized a little while ago. And then his earthly ministry takes place for about a year before he starts proclaiming the good news to the people in the synagogues. And so this whole prophecy is unfolding over the course of time. And we're at the point in time where the year of the Lord's favor has been declared and the day of his vengeance is yet coming. That's still in the future. And Jesus says he is the fulfillment of these prophecies. And if you want to know how you can be part of this kingdom, this reality, you need to be like Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 where he says this saying is trustworthy and worthy of full assurance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And when Jesus speaks about himself, he, he says that he came into the world to proclaim good news to the poor. And Paul says he came to save sinners. And those statements are not at odds with one another because Paul, reading this passage, would say, Jesus came to save the poor. I am the poorest of the poor. He came to save those who are captive. I am the most held captive person of any of the captives that you could see. He came to give sight to the blind. I am the blindest of the blind. He came to liberate the oppressed. I am the one who is most afflicted and most oppressed by my sin. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's his purpose. And these are just physical realities that speak to the deeper spiritual reality about what he came to do in this world. And that lastly takes us to the claim that Jesus makes. And we'll see this in verse 20 and 21. The claim that Jesus makes. And after he reads this text, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now what you need to know is that was normal. He's not sitting down because he's done. He's sitting down because they're about to start the sermon at this point in time. So we've, you've been given a preview of what's about to happen. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Because Jesus is the local teaching rabbi and he has been widely recommended by all the other synagogues. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a bold claim. That's a claim that deserves some backup to the statement. And Jesus will eventually back up this claim. But one thing you need to know is he doesn't wait for his healing ministry to kick off before he starts his teaching ministry. His teaching ministry is this, what we're seeing here, where he sits down in his hometown synagogue after having read this passage, and he begins his sermon with these words, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you gotta imagine what is running through the minds of all the people. You can get a preview if you were to look onto the coming verses. They say that all spoke well of him and marveled 
at the gracious words which are coming out of his mouth. But if you keep going in the passage, you know that that's not how the, their response concludes. But one thing that is sure about his exposition of the text, the claim that he makes, that this text is really talking about him, and also their initial marveling at his exposition, is that Jesus preaches with a different kind of authority and a different kind of power than any of their rabbis. Their rabbis, when dealing with these kinds of texts, make speculation kind of claims. Again, like when we're dealing with Daniel, the later parts of that book, or when we're dealing with Revelation, the whole thing. Those are the kinds of sermons that their rabbis are preaching on these texts of scripture. But Jesus comes and he says, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. And they marvel at the fact that he, with such clear, precise language, articulates to them the true meanings of these texts of scripture. He says, it has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now what you need to know is your English Bible has a good translation here. But there's more to the word been fulfilled than a past tense connotation. Because remember, what we just saw in this prophecy is that it is still ongoing, the fulfillment. And so in the Greek, this is what we would call a present tense word, which means it has an ongoing connotation, even radiating till today's context, which means this scripture is being fulfilled. It's an ongoing fulfillment in their hearing, which means upon them hearing it, that's an active word, hearing it, the scripture is being fulfilled. As he goes to the other synagogues in the area and preaches that same sermon, it is going to continue being fulfilled. He's already been baptized past tense, but he continues his preaching ministry for another three years. And the whole time, this scripture is being fulfilled because his ministry is to preach, to proclaim, to liberate. And that takes place not in one moment or one instance, but in the ongoing revelation of the kingdom, culminating with his death on the cross and then on pause until he returns again. And now this text is continuing to be fulfilled by Christ, but through the church as we evangelize and we disciple the world, proclaiming that Jesus is the one who brings good news to the poor. That we can't substitute out Jesus with government or with society and say that they are the ones who have the solution for the poor or they are the ones who have solution to the oppressed. Because to substitute out Jesus for something else is what we call idolatry. And Jesus is the one who comes to do all these things, which means these are realities in the church, but not necessarily in the world. Now we fight to make them realities in the world, but we do not ultimately realize we have victory until his kingdom comes and his will is done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. And he says that this scripture is fulfilled in the hearing of these people. And so here is a good question which you need to ask yourself and which I'm going to ask again next week. It's the most important question you're ever going to answer, which is, is Jesus's interpretation correct? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he the one who came to do all that he claimed he would do? Is he the one who comes anointed by God for the purpose of liberating the captives? Is he the one who came as a substitute for your and my sin? Is he the one who came proclaiming a kingdom that's not of this world, but a kingdom which his father is bringing down onto this world? Is he the one or should we look for another? Because if he's not the one, you can discard all of what you said. But if he is the one, you need to take careful look at trying to substitute out Jesus for your own works. Or Jesus for your own attempts to reconcile the world and perfect it apart from the finished work of Christ. These things happen within the church. 
These things happen as the gospel goes forth. These things cannot happen apart from the proclamation of the gospel. Liberty, freedom, the opening of the blind eyes, those are things that still happen today, even though we do not heal or open blind eyes. But in a spiritual sense, when we preach the gospel, these same realities all take place. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of Jesus Christ, he preaches and blind eyes see him for who he really is. And some eyes never see him for who he really is. And that's the difference between the anointing of the Spirit in his preaching and not. And for you and I today, that's why as a church, we have such an emphasis on the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. Because God has told us through the example of his son, through the example of the early church, that this is how his spirit primarily moves in the lives of believers. This is what we would call the common grace of God unto all people. And so as we preach and we proclaim the good news, we have to trust that it is the Holy Spirit who goes forth. That we can have dialogues and we can have conversations and we can do mercy ministries and we can engage in all those things. But at the end of the day, it is the gospel that has the power to do all of what has just been said. It is the finished work of Jesus on the cross that has done it. And it is that truth that we continue to proclaim as a church. Even in the face of the fact that that might be foolishness to all the rest of the world. And that might be folly to the Jews. And it might be complete insanity to the Gentiles. Which, by the way, is our culture. And yet we still stand in the face of all those things and say, No, we want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the only thing we care to know. And that has implications for how we live. But the primary thing to get right... The primary thing is that Jesus is who he claims to be. That his interpretation of Isaiah 61 is the correct interpretation. And mattering on whether you agree or disagree with Jesus, this is either great news or this is bad news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a loving God. That through the ministry of Jesus that you have enabled us to see with spiritual eyes the things that we would otherwise never see. That you have opened the eyes of people who were previously blinded to your ways. Lord, we thank you that we, the sinners, the chief of sinners, the ones who would stand first in line to be condemned by you, have been set free of that bondage. Lord, we could never express our thanks enough for that truth. We could never express enough the thanks and the gratitude and the mercies that we feel every single day as we continue to walk in light away from the darkness. And Lord, we just pray that your power would continue to rest on us. Not to make us rich, not to make us wealthy. In fact, if those are the things that will lead us away from you, Lord, keep us from it. But instead, that we would have a great relationship with you. That we would know you as Father, that we would know you as King, that we would know your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. And that we would faithfully grow in the reality of the next life and not be continually bound by the shackles of this world. Lord, we pray for your strength and your mercy upon us as we continue throughout the week. And we trust that as we have gathered together here that you would be honored and your name would be praised in our preaching of the word and also in our singing of the word. And ultimately, Lord, in our hearts, not just with our lips, but that we would know you with our hearts and with our minds. And we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.